we are on the brink of a mental health crisis. And this is why I am so appreciative of the folks over at BetterHelp. They provide the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, and affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. Sign up today. Go to BetterHelp.com and use the promo code Solving Healthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to Quantum podcast 99 at gmail.com reach out on facebook at quadcast or online at drquadjo.ca welcome to solving healthcare i'm quadro caramante I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in ottawa and the founder of resource optimization network we are on a mission to transform healthcare in canada I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. All right, folks, listen, this is the first live cast that we have done in a very long time, probably a year and regarding COVID, and this is really, I, I, we're going to call it a swan song, folks, because I think this is it. I'm going to go, I'm going to be bold and say, like, this is it, my friends. And uh, I think what motivated us to get together today was we want to learn, we want to make sure we learn from the what, what's gone on in the last th- almost three years. We want to learn that, in a sense, that moving forward, the next pandemic, we don't repeat mistakes. And we, once again, kind of elevate the voices of reason and balance and, and so on. So before we get started, I, I do want to give uh, a, a couple of instructions for those that are online. If you press NL into the chat box, you will be able to get this this recording video and audio sent to you via email. You'll be part of our newsletter it's balling. You'll, you'll, you'll get the last one, the, the last hurrah or the last dance. You know what I'm saying? Um, uh, secondly, I want to give a, a quick uh, plug to our new initiative. Uh, our new newsletter is now on Substack. Everything is on there now, like our, our podcast, our, our newsletter. So all the updates you'll be able to get through there. I'm just going to put a link in the chat box. Once I find it, boom, bam, boom, bam. Bam. Okay, there we go. Paste. There we go. That's it right there, folks. So I feel like the crew here needs no introduction. I feel like, but we're going to do it anyway. We got Dr. Zane Chaga. We got Dr. Steph Burrell. We got Dr. Sumo Chakrabarty back in full effect. And once again, like I said, we we were... We chat a lot. We're on a, a on a on a chat group together, and we, we were saying how like we just need to close this out. We need to address some of the issues that we've seen during the pandemic. Talk about how we we need to learn, and also deal with some of the more 
uh, topical issues du jour. So I think what we'll start with, we'll, we'll, we'll get Suman to enter the building. We're going to talk about XBB15. I saw him do an interview on CBC and CTV about this. If you're on Twitter, you're going to get a lot of uh, mixed messages on why you should be fearful of it or why not you should be fearful of it. So from an ID perspective, Suman, what's your what's your viewpoint on B115? Yeah, so uh, first of all, great to be here with you guys. And I agree, I love doing this as a, as a swan song to kind of move to the next stage that doesn't involve us talking about COVID all the time. But um, so, yeah, the, I think that we've had a bit of an alphabet soup in the last year with all these variants. Um, and, you know, the, the, the most ones, uh, the, the most new ones that we're hearing about recently are BQ1, XBB. And I think that what I talked about when I was uh, messaging on the news was taking a step back and looking what's happened in the last 14 months. And what that is showing us is that we've had Omicron for this entire time, which suggests a level of uh, you know, genomic stability in the virus. Uh, if you remember, variants at the very beginning, you know, that was synonymous with, oh, man, we're going to have an explosion of cases, especially with Alpha for the GTA, Delta for the rest of, of Ontario. And I'm just talking about my local area. We saw massive uh, increases in hospitalizations, healthcare resources, uh, patients having to been been uh, uh, sent all over the, the province. It, it was it was awful, right? But, you know, I think that was a bit of PTSD because now after anybody heard the word variant, that's what you remember. But as time has gone on, you can see that the number of hospitalizations uh, has reduced, the number of deaths has reduced. And now when Omicron came, yeah, there was an explosion of cases. But you know, when you look at the actual rate of people getting extremely ill from it, it's much, much, much less. And that was something that you know many of us were secretly thinking, man, this is great when this happened. So now where we are is we're in January 2023. We've had nothing but Omicron since, what was it, late November 2020 or 2021, I guess? Uh, maybe a bit later than that. And uh, XBB, if you remember BA2, XBB is an offshoot of BA2, okay? And yeah, if you're noticing, all these new variants are, um, they're uh, immunovasive. They tend to be not as, they're definitely not as virulent. Like I, I see this in my own practice, like uh, um, all, of, all of us do here. And, uh, you know, they um, are, uh, well, I, I'm calling kind of piecemeal evolution of the virus now. There's not one uh, variant that's going to blow all the other ones out of the water like Omicron did or Delta did, right? Uh, and I think this is a good thing. This is showing that um, we're reaching a different stage of the pandemic, which we've been in for almost a year now. And, um, you know, I think that every time we hear a new one, it doesn't mean that we're back to square one. I think that this is what viruses naturally do. And I think putting that into perspective was very important. Absolutely. Zane, just to pick your brain too, like I got this question the other day about like what to expect with future variants. Like obviously there's no crystal ball, but Suman alluded to the idea that this is what we're to expect. You feel the same? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's interesting because we've not studied a coronavirus this much, you know, in, in history, right? And, and even though we've lived with coronaviruses, there probably was a plague of coronaviruses, but what was the Russian flu was probably the emergence of one of our coronaviruses, our seasonal coronaviruses. Um, you know, and we, we, I think we had some assumptions that coronaviruses would mutate, but then as we look to SARS-CoV-2, and then we look back to say some of the other coronaviruses, actually, they've also mutated quite a bit too. We just haven't, you know, uh, put names or, or other uh, expressions to them. Um, so, you know, and, and, and this is, you know, part of RNA replication. The virus is going to incorporate some mutations and, and survival of the fittest. The difference between 2020, 21, 
2022 and now 2023 is the only pathway for this virus to keep circulating is to become more immune evasive. And, you know, this is what we're seeing is more immune evasion. We're seeing a variant with a couple more mutations where antibodies may bind a little bit less. But I think that the big difference here is that that protection, that severe disease, right? Like the, the, the COVID that we saw in 2020, 2021, the ARDSs, the ECMOs, you know, that terrible ICU-itis uh, from the COVIDs, you know, for the level of antibody T cell function, non-neutralizing antibody function, innate cell function, all of that that's built into, you know, humanity now through infection, vaccine, or both, uh, really, you know, the virus can evolve to evade some of the immunity to cause repeat infections and, you know, get into your mucosa and, and, and replicate a bit. The ability for the virus to kind of you know, cause deep tissue infection, lead to ARDS, lead to all of these complications is getting harder and harder and harder. And that's us evolving with the virus. And that's, you know, how how many of these viruses as they emerge through the population really have kind of led to stability more than anything else. So yes, we're going to see more variants. Yes, you know, this is probably what, what the future is. There will be some more cases and there may be a slight tick in hospitalizations associated with them. But again, you know, the, the difference between 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023 is a serum prevalence of nearly 100% one way or another. And, and that really does define how this disease goes moving forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. Maybe, Steph, we could pipe in a bit on, you know, the idea that, like, first of all, I just want to reinforce, like, as an ICU doc in Ottawa with a population of over a million, we really have seen very little uh covid pneumonia since february 2022 like v- minimal and and it just goes to show exactly what uh suman and zane were alluding to less virulent you know you know with the immunity that we've uh, established in the community all reassuring science one, one question i want to throw towards steph like actually before getting into it i gotta say you you did an interview with i believe uh mike hart and i told like as you were doing this interview I was like, I'm, I was going beast mode. I was hearing, I was hearing Steph throw down and it was just like, I don't know if you were, you were like a bit testy that day or whatever, but the, the raw emotion of reflecting on the pandemic and how we responded and, and, and how, you know, far away we've gone away from public health principles was just like this motive, this motivator to say, like, we cannot ha- have this happen again. Like, I got to tell you, boys, like after hearing that episode, I was like, yeah, let's do this. Let's get on. Let's get on another do another show. I'm going to leave a fairly open step. But like what what has been the, the some of the key um, ways we've approached this pandemic that has really triggered you? Yeah, I mean, so, so I guess what I'd say is like in some ways. I wish there was nobody listening to this right now. Like, I wish there was like, I don't know what the audience is. I don't know if it's 10 people or 100 people, but I think it's like, I wish nobody cared anymore. I want public health to care. I want doctors to care. We're going to keep talking because, you know, Quadra, you've had folks in the ICU. We've, we've, we've seen cases in the shelters. We have outbreaks. Like public health is always going to care about COVID as it cares about influenza, as it cares about RSV and other viruses because it needs to respond to outbreaks among vulnerable folks and 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 that will never stop COVID. It was just clear very early that COVID is going to be with us forever. So that means tragically people will die of COVID 
people and and I think that you know there's that that's a reality it, it could it, it sometimes hits very close to home for those of us who are providers uh, as it has for me in, in in the last week so COVID never ends I think the issue is that like when does COVID end as a as a matter of worthy of discussion yes. for like the average person and the answer is a long time ago and I think that like you know that that folks need to <clears throat> I mean, I think for the folks that, that I've, I've spoken to and definitely the way that we've lived our lives as a family is to focus on the things that like bring folks joy and to kind of continue moving along while also ensuring that the right services are in place for folks who are experiencing, who are at risk for COVID and serious consequences of COVID. And also just thinking about sort of the broader systems issues that I think continue to put folks at risk. And, and so one, I think it's amazing like how little of the systematic issues we've changed We've not improved healthcare capacity at all, amazingly. We've not really changed any of the structures that put our like limitations on the health, that, on the pressures on the health system. None of that has changed. All of it has been sort of offset and downloaded and just like talking about masks and endless boosters when we've never really gotten into any of the meaty stuff. And as you said, three years into it and everybody's like, well, it's an emergency. I'm like, it was an emergency and fine, we did whatever was needed, even if I didn't agree with it at the time. But irrespective of that, whatever that was done was done. But now it's like, it's amazing that like the federal money expires for COVID in the next few months. And all we'll have shown for it is switch health guys got became millionaires. Like a bunch of people, I don't mind naming them. I don't care anymore. These folks, like these grifters went out and like grabbed endless amounts of money in these cash grabs that arrival, the arrive can apps with like these mystery contractors that they can't track down millions of dollars. So it's like all these folks like grabbed, you know, huge amounts of money. And I think there's a real question at the end of it of like, what are we as a, as a country or, you know, across countries, what do you have to show for it? How are you going to better respond? And the answer right now is like very little, like we have very little to show for all this, all these resources that have been invested, all this work that has been done. And that I think should shout that that's like, that should be the conversation that to me needs to be this next phase of it is like, Billions and billions and billions of dollars, trillion, I don't know, whatever, like tens of billions of dollars were spent on what and what was achieved and what do we want to do next time and what do we have to show for it? Like that to me feels like the meat of the conversation rather than like silly names for these new variants that do nothing but scare people in a way that isn't helpful. Like it does not advance health. It doesn't, you know, make the response any more helpful. It just scares people in a way that I think only detracts them from seeking the care um, that we want them to be seeking. Yeah. I, I, I think you brought up a point too about, or alluded to like how some of this was just distraction. This, that was one of the points that really st stuck to stuck home is that we, we didn't really dive into the core shit, like the core issues. And this is why at the end of it all, are we that much more ready for the next pandemic that we'll, 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 we'll see, you know? And so like maybe Suman, what do you think in terms of like uh, another tough one, maybe, but like, are we ready for the next pandemic? Do you think we've, we've done enough? Do we think our, in terms of what we've invested in, how we've uh, communicated to the public, the, the, the messaging to the public, like, are we learning is my question, I guess. So just to, you know, I'm a clinician and I don't work with uh, the, the public health and the policy aspect as closely as, say, as 
Stefan does. But I will say that, I mean, obviously I've been in this um, realm for, for quite a long time since uh, in ID. I think that, you know, one thing that's important to remember is that for SARS-1, we actually had this document uh, that outlined all of this, uh, you know, masking, uh, so, social distancing, which was called uh, what to do with funding and all that kind of stuff. And basically, um, I was actually interviewed about this. I remember back way back in 2020, and half of it was basically just thrown out the window. And I think that a lot of what happened is that fear came in, uh, decisions were made to promotion, which is, by the way, understandable especially in April 2020. Uh, I've shared with you guys before that in, in February 2020, I was waking up at night like nervous uh, uh, that I was going to die. I, that, that's what I was thinking. I, I, it, was, it was terrible. And I completely understand making those decisions. I think as time went on, I wish that um, you know, uh, there was a bit more of a kind of a, the public health principles um, uh, you know, making sure that we're dealing with things without you know, uh, stepping on people's uh, bodily autonomy, for example, um, you know, uh, doing things in an equitable way where you, you know, we all know that every intervention that you do is squeezing a balloon. You have to remember the unintended consequences. I think that we didn't. So kind of putting that all together, I think right now, as we stand uh, in Canada, if we do have another pandemic, I fear that a lot of these same mistakes are going to be made again. And I should say a, a disruptive pandemic of this, because let's not forget H1N1, uh, the pandemic, that was a pandemic, right? It wasn't nearly as disruptive as, as uh, COVID was. But uh, I do think that an inquiry, and like you mentioned at the beginning, um, Kwajo was talking about uh, what we did well, what we didn't do well, and making sure the good stuff happens and the bad stuff doesn't happen again, because uh, uh, this is likely not the last pandemic uh, in the information age in our lifetimes. Zane, was there anything that stuck out for you, you know, in terms of, um what you would want us to like where you'd really want to see us improve or whether it is messaging, whether it is, you know, public health principles, like does anyone, any, any of those stick out in your mind? Yeah. I mean, I think the one unique thing about this pandemic that, you know, is, uh, is a lesson moving forward and, and uh, for us to kind of deal with, I think we talked about messaging, but really this was the first major pandemic that occurred in social media, in the social media era. Right. And where, information, misinformation, disinformation, all the things that, you know, that were all over the place, um, you know, were flying, right? And and there does need to be some reconciliation of what's happened. We have to have some reconciliation of some of the benefits of the social media era and in pandemic management, but also the significant harms that, that people, um, you know, were scared that people got messaging that may not have been completely accurate, that people had their biases as they were out there. And, and I will say, even that social media component penetrated into the media. This is also the first time that I think we Great. saw experts, you know, including myself and Suman and, and all of us, you know, that, you know, could be at home and do a news interview on national news in five minutes and, and be able to deliver their opinion to a large audience very quickly. And and so, you know, I think all of that does need a bit of a reconciliation in terms of what worked, what doesn't, how we validate, you know, good medical knowledge versus um, knowledge that comes from biases, how we evaluate SciComm and, and people, you know, using it as a platform for good, but may in fact be using it, you know, and or, or incorporating their own biases to use it for a 
um, more uh, more disinformation and misinformation, even if they feel like they have good intentions with it. And yeah, I, I you know I think this is a, a, a you know for, for the sociologists and and the communications professionals out there, you know, a really interesting case example. And and unfortunately, I don't think we came out the other side with social media being a pro positive tool. It may have been a positive tool, I think, in the beginnings, but. You know, I think I'm finding it's nice to communicate with folks, but I'm finding more harm and more, um, uh, you know, dichotomy and division from social media, you know, these days as compared to the beginnings of the pandemics where, um, you know, I think, again, there's just been so much bias, so much misinformation, so much, um, uh, you know, uh, people's clouts and careers that have been, you know, staked on social media that, um, you know, it's really become much, much harder to figure out what's real and what's not real in that sense. Absolutely. I, 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 I'll, I'll full, fully agree, Zane, that at the beginning, I, in some ways, I'll tell you, ICU management, that, that whole movement for us to de- delay intubation as opposed to intubation early, I really think it was pushed by in social media. So I think it saved lives, right? But then as we got through more and more of the pandemic, wow, like eh, like the amount of just straight up medieval gangster shit that was going on in that in that circle, in that avenue was crazy. And then just like, I mean, this might be controversial to say, I don't know, but news agencies got lazy. They would use Twitter quotes for, for, you know, for in their articles as, 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 you know, evidence or, or as uh proof of uh, uh you know uh, an argument it, it's like what is happening it, 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 honestly when you think about it it was honestly it was crazy it still is crazy yeah and I, I think expertise was another issue right and and you know unfortunately we know of, of you know certain experts that were not experts that weren't actually certified that weren't front lines and, and it, like variety of opinions and variety of standpoints in epidemiology public health intensive care, infectious diseases, whatever is important. But, you know, there were, you know, individuals out there that had zero experience that were reading papers and interpreting them from a lens of someone that really didn't have medical experience or epidemiologic experience that chased their clout, that made money. And, you know, we know some examples of people that, that eventually had the downfall from it. But, you know, at the end of the day, those people were on media social media and it penetrated into real media and and that is a, a real lesson for us is that validation of expertise is going to be important um you know as much as we allow for anyone to have an opinion you know as they get into kind of real media they really have to be validated that that opinion comes from a place that's you know evidence-based and, and scientific and and based on you know a, a significant amount of training rather than just you know, regurgitating or, uh, or, you know, applying one small skill set and being an expert in, in many other things. For real. Suma. I just was just going to add something really quickly is that uh, in addition to what Zane's saying, you know, when this stuff bled over from social media to media, the thing that, I mean, at least what it seemed like is it was actually influencing policy. And that's, I think, yes. the important thing is, so you can have 10 people, 20 people yelling. It doesn't matter if they're uh, extreme minority. If it's influencing policy, that affects all of us, right? So I think that's important. Like, I want to be clear, too, about, like, some motivate. I hate, like, I- I'll be honest with you. Like, I-, I got to the point where I really hated Twitter. Like, I, I still kind of hate Twitter, okay? And it was conversation. I, I remember Suman that you and I had. I don't remember if it was uh, 
if we're texting or if we're, I think we actually talked about this, but the fact that policy could be impacted by what we're throwing down, the fact that the, or the messages that we were doing on media, that this can impact uh, policy, you had to, like, we, especially when there was some badness happening, we had to step up. We had to be a voice of like logic, you know, when it was, whether it was mandates, whether it was, uh, you know, lockdown, school closures, whatever it might have been. Like, because the, the politicians, you, you, you and I, we heard about this politicians looking at this, the me- mainstream media looking at this. And for us not to say anything at this point, like we had, to, we had to do something. Um, yeah. Sorry, Steph, you, you're going to pipe in. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what was interesting to me to see, and, and I think a clear difference between H1N1 and was that in a lot of places, in, including in Ontario, but you know, across the U S where this sort of emergence of these, like, these science tables, these task forces, these whatever you want to call them, it was like a new body of people, often whom had never spent a day in a public health agency, um, you know, often academics that, you know, are probably good with numbers, but really, you know, don't have a lot of experience delivering services, um, you know, all of a sudden making decisions. And so I think there's a real interesting dynamic there when you compare, for example, Ontario and British Columbia, one has this science table, one does not and just how different things played out. And I think was, you know, I mean, given it's a, you know, an end of, of two or end of one in each camp, but I think what you see is like, there's a place there where like public health or, you know, let's say Sweden, you know, as a public health agency that didn't strike up its own task force that used its traditional public health agency, I think was in a place to make more like reasoned and measured decisions and just was like better connected. Like the relationships exist between the local health authorities and the provincial health authorities and the national ones. And I think, you know, when you set up these, I just think like the one thing that I hope we never do again is that something like the science table never happens again. And I, and that's not to sort of disparage most of the people, actually most of the folks on the science table, I, I you know, I, I like and I respect say many of them, maybe not most, but many of them I like and respect. But it is, but it is the case that like there was, it was like, they weren't the right group of people. They weren't representative Ontarians. You know what I mean? It was like 10, 10 guys and two women. I think, I don't know, many of them white. It was like, they weren't representative, like socioeconomically, racially diverse, I mean, anything, you know, they didn't have the right expertise on there. I would have liked to have seen some like frontline nurses on there to be like, mm. listen, this stuff is silly or some frontline, whoever, like just like some frontline folks to be like, listen, none of the stuff that you're saying makes any sense whatsoever. And luckily there were some reasoned voices on there, but they were the minority, but luckily they prevailed or we would have had outdoor masking and even tougher lockdowns. Like, I don't know how folks realize, like it was really close. And I think, you know, we, we fortunately had that representation, but that it should have never even happened. We should have had public health Ontario, being its agency and, and and making recommendations to the ministry and you know and 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 to the government, and there should have never been a science table. And then the second thing, thing I just want to say, we talk about this forever, and I do think we should talk about this more, not in the context of like of, of this of this podcast, but is also just absolutely the role of the media. And and I do want to say that like historically, you know, media had to do a lot of work. They had to go to universities or hospitals and ask for like the right expert. And then the media or comms team there would be like, you should really talk to St. Chagla because he has good exam, you know, he has good expertise on this, or you should talk to like, I don't know, like Dr. So-and-so for this or that, you know, and, and they put together the right person, they organize a the time and then they talk. 
And now, you know, the, and, and it was really like the story, I think, was more organically developed on, based on what the experts had to say. Now you've got reporters like there's a, a for people who are not from Ontario, there's a sports reporter in the city of Toronto that I looked historically. I, I can't see that they've ever done anything in public health. All of a sudden became like the COVID reporter in the city of Toronto and for a major newspaper. And it's like this person has not a clue of what they're talking about just like has no clue. They've never trained it. I don't disparage it. They're a sports reporter. Like, why should they? Do you know what I mean? But they became the voice of like public health for like the average person. And it just, it set us up where that person just had a story and then just found whatever people on Twitter that they could to like back up their story, irrespective to drive controversy, to drive anger towards the government based on sort of political leanings. And like, even if maybe my political leanings are aligned with that person, it's irrelevant because it's not about politics. It's about public health. And so I think like there's just like the media, we have to think about like, how do we manage the media's need for clicks and profit, you know, during this time in with like their role as like a responsible or an important part of like, you know, social functioning in terms of like the free press. So I, I there's no easy answers to that, but I'll just say, I think there was a, a fundamentally important role that the media played here and I have to say, it, it didn't play out positively in most yeah. places. I, I got to say, like, this is going to be naive talk, but we're in a pandemic. There had to be so many of us had a sense of duty. Like, I, I, I was surprised at the lack of sense of duty, to be honest with you. Like, even if you are about your clicks, ask yourself, is this is this about the greater good here? Like, is this really going to get us further ahead? And it, I mean... I've said this a few times on my platform. I would have a balance, a, a, a mess, a balanced message on. It's usually one specific network. They would bail on the interview. They would literally bail on the interview to, because my message might may not been as as fearful. Like what the f- actual f? You know what I mean? Like it's crazy. I will say there were some good reporters and and I don't want to say that, that, you know, there were some incredible folks. And I, I, you know, I I was talking to someone the other day, I won't mention who, but I think the the mark of the good reporter was, um, you know, they had a story, they wanted to talk about it. They contacted us and they said, what time can we talk this week? Right. They didn't say, I need to get this filed in three hours, because if you say you need to get this filed in three hours, the expert you're going to go to is the one that's available in the next three hours, right? Um, they wanted to hear an opinion. They wanted to, you know, get multiple opinions on the table, but they would carve out the time so that everyone could give their 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 story or you know what their opinion was or what evidence they presented. Um, but they made sure it rotated around the experts rather than the story rotating around being filed. And, and I think it's important and and. You know, you can get a sense of, of certain things that are on the need to be filed this day or even on the 24-7 news cycle where they may not be as well researched. You know, they're, they're a single opinion. They're quoting a Twitter tweet now, I think, in, in some of these um, media platforms. You can actually just embed the Twitter tweet. You don't even have to, um, you yeah. know, quote it in that sense. You just basically take a screenshot of it, basically. Um Versus again those articles where I think there was there was more thought and I, I think there were some great reporters in Canada uh, that really did go above and beyond health reporters particularly that really did try to present uh, um, you know a picture that was well researched and evidence based and you know with what what's available but 
um, you know, you, there certainly are, are these issues and, and it's not a COVID specific issue, but, but with media and reporting in that sense. Yeah. yeah. And, but it's, and it's important to say, like, it's not actually just a reporter. Like there's, you know, it's the editors, it's the editorial teams. Like I had some like OTR discussions with reporters very early on. I've tried to stay away from the media because it's like, I think folks who have done it have done it well. And, um, but, but it was interesting because uh, Bob Sargent, uh, who sadly passed away, uh, internal medicine physician, uh, and an amazing mentor to many clinicians in, in Toronto, you know, um, uh, put me in touch with a couple of reporters. He's like, you know, you're a public health person. You should really talk to these reporters. And we had this like, they're like, can we talk to you privately? It's, it's like, it was so weird. This was like summer of 2020. And so we had a very private discussion where I said, like, listen, I have concerns about lockdowns for like these reasons. I, have, you know, like these are my, con you know, these, this is, this is what, you know, and, and I think it's reasoned because it's, I'm not. It, I've got no conspiracy to drive. Like I've got no, there's no angle in any of it. And so, um, but it was just fascinating. So they were like, we might, we, you know, we might be able to come back to you and maybe we'll try to do a story around it. And then they came back and said, actually, like, we're not going to be able to pursue it. I'm like, that's, that's fine. Like, it's no problem. But it just sort of showed that I think similar as academics and clinicians and, and all of us have been under pressure based on, I don't know, everything from like CPSO complaints to, to complaints to our employers, to whatever, to just, you know, the standard attacks on Twitter. I think there was also a lot of pressure on reporters based on the sort of whole structure and of it. And so I, I think, I don't mean to disparage anybody, but I do think, Quadra, the point that you made is a really important one, is, I, I, you know, my, I'll just say in our own house, you know, my wife and I both were like talking at the beginning of this and being like, what do we want to know that we did during this time? So like my wife worked in person as a clinician all through her all throughout her pregnancy. Like she never didn't go, you know, she did call, she did all of that. Obviously I, you know, have done the work I've done in terms of both clinically and vaccine related testing. But this this idea of like, what, what do you want to remember about the time that you, what, like what you did when shit hit the fan? And, and, and you know, because it, first of all, it'll happen again, but just also, I think it's important to sort of to be able to reflect and, and, and think positively about what you did. Um, anyways. Yeah. Amen. And I, I mean, I hear you both. And I mean, part of it too, for me, I'll just straight up honesty. Like I'm, I'm, I'm in some ways I'm just pissed. I'm pissed at like a lot of the efforts that were, were that a lot of people put into, to try and, 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 you know, get a good message out there, the backlash, now people reflecting saying oh i guess you did you know many of you do they had a good point about lockdowns not working out in 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 favor of like uh not like reversing their their mindset in terms of lockdowns and stuff and you know i'm, I'm i know it's maybe childish in some way but it's just you know a lot of us have gone through a lot to just try and you know create the, a balanced approach and and yeah i, I think there's a little bit of edge in this voice and and but I think it comes with a bit of a bit of reason to to have a bit of edge. And I think um, in terms of, you know, maybe the next couple of questions here are, are areas to focus on. A lot of people uh, in terms of like decisions regarding mandates, boosters and so forth, like we talk a lot about, you know, in public health, it's the data that helps drive decisions, right? Like that's really what what it, you would think it, it should be all about. So one of the many questions that were thrown to us when we announced that this was happening was, you know, the need for 
like almost like universal boosters. And Suman, I'll put you on the spot there. You know, at this stage in the pandemic, we're I'm going to type timestamp this for people think on audio. You know, we're on January 10th, 2023. You know, there's some questions that we get like, who really needs a booster? Do we all need boosters? Uh, what's your what's your what's your thoughts on that? Um, so I, I think that w- one of the things that uh, I kind of I, I said this uh, as uh, Zane makes fun of me throughout the pandemic, I always came up with catchphrases. And my one for immunity is the way that we've conceptualized immunity in North America, and I think a lot of this has to do with an actual graphic from the CDC, which likens immunity to an iPhone or a battery, iPhone battery. So uh, iPhone immunity, where you have to constantly be recharging and updating it. Uh, and I think that has kind of bled into the messaging. Uh, that's what we think of it. So um, I remember back in, I think it was October of 2021, um, where they were all of a sudden starting to talk about the third dose. The third dose, I think that um, at that time, we knew that for the higher risk people, it was probably the, um, the people who would benefit the most from it. We had Ontario data um, from, it was, I think it was ISIS from, uh, I think that's uh, Jeff Kwong's group talking about, uh, you know, there's vaccine efficacy against hospitalization of around 96% in um, Ontarian healthcare workers, 99% if you were less than 70 years of age. Yet this thing kind of went out and everybody felt like they had to get the booster. So I think that the first thing that bothered me about that is that there wasn't a kind of um, uh, stratified look at the risk level and who needs it. So now we're in 2023. I think that one of the big things, apart from what I said, uh, you know, who's at higher risk, there's still this problem where people think that every six months I need to recharge my immunity, which certainly isn't true. There wasn't a recognition that being exposed to COVID itself is providing you with very robust immunity against severe disease, which is kind of, it's coming out now, uh, but we've been, we've all been talking about it for, uh, for a long time. Uh, and, you know, the, the other thing, uh, is that the disease itself has changed. I think that I heard this awesome uh, expression, the first pass effect. So when the COVID first came through a completely immune naive population, of course, we saw death and, uh, and morbidity. But we saw all the other bad stuff, the rare stuff, the COVID encephalitis, uh, COVID uh, GB, uh, GBS, uh, tons of ECMO, like 40-year-olds dying. But then with each subsequent wave, as immunity started to accrue in the population, that didn't happen. Now we're at a completely different variant. And the thing is, do we even need to be doing widespread vaccination when you're with current um, variant uh, and you can't be thinking about what we saw in 2021? So putting that now all together, we have, uh, as Zane mentioned, a, a zero prevalence of about uh, almost 100%. You have people that are fairly well protected against severe disease, the vast majority of the population. You have a variant that absolutely can make people sick, and yes, it can kill people. But for those of us who work on the front lines, that looks very different uh, on, the, on the front lines. So I really think that we should take a step back and say, I don't. number one, I don't think that the booster is needed for everybody. I think, number two, there are people who are under a certain age, probably 55 and healthy, who probably don't need any further vaccination, or at least until we have more data. And number three, whatever, before we make a widespread um, a recommendation for the population, we have time now. We're not in the emergency phase anymore. I really hope that we get more uh, RCT data over the long term to see who is it that needs the, the vaccine, uh, if at all. Uh, uh, and you know who benefit from it, and let's continue to accrue this data with time. Thanks, Suman. Maybe uh, Zane, is there 
are you are you on this uh, along the same lines as Sumon in terms of uh, you know who who needs boosters and who doesn't like? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know number one is the recognition that prior infection and hybrid immunity probably are, are incredibly adequate. And you know, again, people like Paul Offit, and we're not just talking about you know experts like us. These are people that are sitting on the FDA advisory committee, a man that actually made vaccines in the United States. You know, that talks about the limitations of boosters and probably three doses being, you know, the, the peak of the series for most people. And, and even then, you know, two plus infection probably is enough as three or, or even one plus infection. The data may suggest maybe is as, as high as three. Um, you know, and, and I think, again, this is one of these things that gets diluted as it starts going down the chain. If you actually look at the NACI guidance for, you know, uh, bivalent vaccines, it actually incorporates a should and a can consider uh, in, in all of this, right? So they talk about vulnerable individuals, elderly individuals should get a booster where there may be some benefits in that population. The rest of the population can consider a booster in that sense, right? And I think as the boosters came out and again, you know, people started jumping on them, it came to everyone needs their booster. And unfortunately, the messaging in the United States is perpetuated that quite a bit with this iPhone charging thing and, you know, Biden tweeting that everyone over the age of six months needs a booster where, you know, again, we really do have to reflect on the population that we're going at. And ultimately, you know, again, if you start pressing the issue too much in the wrong populations, you know, the uptake is is, is showing itself, right? The, the people who wanted their bivalent vaccine got it. Uh, thankfully, again, the right populations are, are being incentivized, especially the, the elderly and the very elderly and not the high risk. But uptake in most other populations has been relatively low. So people are, are you know, uh, making their decisions based on um, based on what they know. And, and again, you know, that that hesitation and that that, you know, what is this going to benefit me? Um, and, you know, I think we, we as Suman said, you know, that that confidence is going to be restored when we have better data. And we're in a phase now where we can do cluster randomized RCTs um, in low risk populations and show it. If you want the vaccine, you enter into a cluster randomized RCT if you're in a low risk population uh, and we, you know, match you one to one with placebo. And, you know, we can tell you if you got, you know, what, what your prognosis was at the end of the day. And that information is going to be important for us because I don't think, you know, a policy of boosting twice a year or once a year is going to get people um, on the bus. Every booster seems like people are getting off the bus more and more. And so we, we really do have to have compelling information now as we're bringing these out to start saying, you know, is this a necessity? And especially in low-risk populations, how much of a necessity is it? How much do you quantify it in that sense? And, and again, recognizing that that people are being infected now, that adds another twist to all of this, that says. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about public trust too in, in a bit here. But Steph, you, you were uh, among um, some authors that uh, – did a like a, a an essay on the the booster mandates for university students because I, I think one of the, you know as we've both alluded to Zane and Suman like there's like you know this is a needs to be stratified we you know from an RCT booster point of view that we don't really it, it, we're not well established there but when we looked at when Steph's group looked at university mandates and potential harm you know, when we're doing like an actual cost benefit ratio, their their conclusion was that there's more room for harm than 
than than benefit. So, Steph, I just maybe you want to speak to that that paper a bit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it was. So I, I will say this. I mean, I, I I don't actually have much to add other than what what Zane and Sumari said. Like, you know, run a vaccine program. We are offering you know, doses as it makes sense for folks who are particularly immunocompromised, multiple comorbidities, and remain at risk for, for serious consequences related to COVID-19. So, you know, and, and we'll continue doing that. Um, and, and that will, you know, gets integrated, by the way, into like sort of a vaccine preventable disease program. So offering, you know, shingles, pneumovax, um, uh, influenza, uh, COVID, and also we want to do it broader in terms of other hepatitis vaccines, et cetera. But that aside, so this this isn't about, you know, the, it was really interesting being called anti-vax by folks who have like never gotten close to a vaccine other than being pricked by one and and having delivered literally thousands of doses of vaccine. So it's just like this, it's, it's almost, it's a joke, right? Like it's a, it's a but, it, but it's an effective thing of like shutting down conversation. And that, that aside, I think there's a few things at play. One, as it related to that paper, um, I find it really interesting, particularly for young people, um, when people are like, listen, yes, they had a little bit of like inflammation of their heart, but it's, uh, it's self-resolving and, you know, self-limiting and, and they're going to be fine. It's like, you don't know that. And like, you know what I mean? Like, I, maybe, sure, we'll see what happens with these folks 20 years later. The reality is, is that like, you know, for younger men, particularly, this happens to be a very gender dynamic. For younger men particularly, there seems to be a dynamic where they are at risk of myocarditis. I don't know why that's a controversy. In any other era, for any other disease, this would not be a controversy. It would just be more of a factual statement. The data were clear in, I'd say, probably April, May 2021. And I think there's lots of things we could have done. We could have done one-dose series for people who had been previously infected. We could have stopped the two. Like there's there's a million different very, very versions of what we could have done, none of which we actually did. In the context of mandating boosters now for young people, including at my institution. So, you know, um, you were mandated to get a booster or you would no longer be working there. So obviously I got one. Um, um, but, you know, there's a real dynamic there of like, are, what what is your goal at that point? Because at that, because probably about 10, 11 months into the vaccine program it became increasingly clear. Nobody's, nobody's surprised by this. You can still get COVID. No, nobody's surprised by that. That was clear even from the data. And by the way, it wasn't even studied. I mean, Pfizer, the way if you just look at the Pfizer Moderna trials, none of them looked to see whether you got COVID or not. They were just looking at symptomatic disease. That, that aside, I think that the, um, it just became this clear thing where for younger men, one or two doses was plenty. And it seems to be that as you accumulate doses for those folks, particularly it's also important if somebody had a really bad myocarditis, they're not even getting a third dose. So you're already selecting out, you know, some of these folks, but you are starting to see increased levels of harm as it related to hospitalization. And that what, what we basically did there was a very simple analysis of looking at averted hospitalization either way. Many people say that's the wrong metric. You can pick whatever metric you want. That's the metric we picked in terms of hospitalization related to side effects of the vaccine versus benefits. And what it just showed was that for people under the age of 30, you just don't see a benefit at that point as, you know, as compared to harm. That's totally and fundamentally different. We, had, we weren't talking about the primary series and we weren't talking about older folks. And so indeed, I think you know, that was... That was, I don't know why it was, it, it was particularly controversial. We, it was a follow-up piece to mandates in general. And I'll just say like, 
I've been running this vaccine program. I don't think mandates have made my life easier at all. I know there's like this really common narrative of like mandates, you know, mandates work, mandates work. But I think at some point, and, and I'll just say our own study of this is like, we're really gonna have to ask two questions. One, what did mandates really get us in terms of averted COVID-19 morbidity mortality? And two, and this is an important one for me, what have we cost ourselves in terms of how much pressure we put on people as it relates to vaccines right now in general? Because the very common narrative that I'm getting is they're like, oh, the anti-vax, the anti-vax folks are winning and people don't want their standard vaccines and we're getting less uptake of like MMR and standard, you know, kind of childhood vaccines. I have a different opinion. I really do. At least I, I believe some proportion of this, I don't know what proportion, some proportion, it's just like people have been pushed so hard about COVID-19 vaccines that they they literally don't want to be approached about any vaccine in general. And so I, you know, I just think that within public health, there's always a cost. And part of the decision-making in public health, as it relates to clinical medicine too, it's like you give a medication, the advantage and then, you know, the disadvantage side effects of that medication. In public health, there are side effects of our decisions that are sometimes anticipated and sometimes avoidable, sometimes can't be anticipated and sometimes can't be avoided. And you have to kind of really give thought to each of them before you enact this policy or you might very well cost more, you know, kind of health lives, you know, health outcomes than, than you're actually gaining by implementing it. Yeah. I, number one, I, I, I've always wondered what was spooky to me is like even mentioning, I was afraid, I don't know about you. I was afraid even to use the term myocarditis at times. You, you of know what I mean? Like, of it's, and the worst part is, as you said, Steph, it's young, it's young, young folk that we are we're alluding to. And for us to not be able to basically say, let's look at the harm and benefit in a in a group that's low risk was baffling. It really was baffling. And I'm glad we're at least more open to that now. Um, but certainly that's why I thought the, the paper that you guys put together was so important because it's it's in the medical literature that we're showing, you know, uh, you know, objectively what the, the cost benefit of, of some of these approaches are. Um, Suman, when you think of, you know, like mandates and public trust, as Steph was kind of alluding to, like every, every decision that we made throughout this thing, also has a downside also has a cost as, as as Steph was mentioning where do you think we are in terms of the public trust you know like we we were talking about how the childhood vaccines are are lower i don't know what influenza vaccine rates are like now i, I would be surprised if they're the same standard but who knows them where they're at uh, currently but based on your perspective where, where do you think the the public trust is right now yeah i mean i think that look I, I, as physicians we obviously still do have a lot of uh, trust uh, uh, in uh, the, the people we take care of but uh, people are still coming to see us i wish they didn't have to because everyone was healthy but that's not the case but yeah i, I do think that um over the last uh, two and a half uh, we're coming up on three years i guess right now um, that uh, people, we have burned a lot of trust. I think that mandates were part of it. Um, I do think that you know some of it was unavoidable. It was just that there was a lot of uncertainty. 
Um, there was a back and forth. I think that um, one thing that, that concerned me on social media was that a lot of uh, professionals were airing their dirty laundry to the public and you could see these infights. And that doesn't—that's not really um, a good thing. We saw people um, being very uh, um, derisive towards people who were not listening to the public health rules. You know what I mean? There's a lot of that kind of talk uh, uh, of othering. And yeah, I think that that certainly over time uh, eroded public trust. That'll take a long time to um, uh, get back uh, if we do get it back. But um, I think that the, the the bottom line is that I get that uh, there are times that we have to do certain things. Um, uh, when you have a, a, a unknown pathogen coming at you, um, when you don't really much about it, but I do think that um, you want to do the greatest good for the uh, for the population. But again, you always have to remember, as, as Stefan uh, alludes to, the cost of what you're doing. And I do think that um, we could have done that much early on. But you know, for example, in Ontario, we were locked down in some, or sorry, not Ontario, but GTA. Uh, we were locked down in some regard for almost a year and a half. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, there was that um, debate on opening bars and restaurants before schools. And, you know, it's just like, I remember shaking my head. Is that, Look, I get it. I know what you guys are talking about. People are going to be eating a burger before kids can go to school. And that might ruin everything. But the problem is, is that you have to remember that a restaurant is owned by someone. That small um, gym is, is someone's livelihood, you know, you're moralizing over what this is, but this is actually in the end, it's the way somebody puts food on the table. And, you know, for a year and a half, we didn't let, uh, especially small businesses do that. I'm no economist, but uh, I had many family members and friends who were impacted by this. A couple of, two of my friends, uh, unfortunately committed suicide uh, over this. So, you know, we had a lot of impact outside of the, of the um, uh, things that we did uh, that hurt people. Um, and uh, certainly the trust will have to be regained over the long term. Uh, well, we'll put some on. I, I, I do think we're going to, it's going to take work. Like, I, I, I think for me, honestly, it's it's just about being transparent. Like, I, I, I honestly, I, you know, I put myself in, a, in, some, in, in the shoes of the public, and I just want to hear the truth. Like, if we're not sure about something, that's okay. Mm-hmm. We're going to weigh the evidence, and this is our suggestion. This is why we're saying this. Could we be wrong? Yes, we could be wrong. But this is what we think is the best path forward. And people could get behind that. I honestly feel like people could get behind that, showing a little bit of vulnerability and saying, you know, we're not know-it-alls here, but this is what our best strategy is based, our, our viewpoint on the best strategy based on the data that we have in front of us. And just be open and, and allowing for open dialogue and not squash it, not have that dichotomous thinking of you're on one side, you're on the other, you're anti-vax, you're pro-vax, you're anti-vax, you're pro-mask. Like, stop with the labels, yo. You know, like, it's just, it got crazy. And it just was not a safe environment for dialogue. And, and how, how, are you supposed to, how are you supposed to advance? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just going to, I, I do want to say something, given that this is this idea of our swan song. So it's it's, I think there was this sort of feeling like, you know, people were like, you gotta you gotta act hard, you gotta move fast. So I'll, I'll just you know, so I, I think everybody on uh, at least you guys all know I travel a lot. So I like to think of myself as like in the early 2020, I did like a COVID tour, where I like flew through like I was like 
in Japan in February and then I was in Thailand and then I was in South and everywhere I landed, they were like COVID's here, COVID's here, COVID's here. And then finally I like got home at like the end of February and I was supposed to be home for like four days or something and then, and then take off. And obviously, you know, things got shut down, but it was like obvious, like COVID was the whole world had COVID by, you know, February. Like there may have been a time to shut down this pandemic in September, 2019. Do you know what I mean? Like, not, and by November 2019, we had cases that we for sure, like they've already seen some and Canadian Blood Services have done some, showing some serological evidence already at that time. Like there was no shutting it down. And I think what happened was, you know, people said we were the ones spreading hopium. I'm like, I'm not spreading hopium about positive outcomes. This thing's going to suck. But the reality is like, like promising that you can eliminate this thing by like enacting these really like arbitrary that can only be described as arbitrary, like shutting the border to voluntary travel, but not to like truckers and, you know, then I don't know, like everything felt so arbitrary. And so when you talk about trust, if you can't explain it, if you're just like, if you just do it because it's a good person, you're, if you're a good person, do it. If you don't do it, you're a white supremacist. Literally, it's like this, like, and you know, you just kind of create, Quadro, you were part of a group that was called the Urgency of Normal. You were a white supremacist. Like, yeah. it's so, it's we were so, racist. No, I know. It's like, it's yeah. so ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like, and, and but it, it creates this dynamic where you can't have any meaningful conversation. So I actually really worry, like, unless we can start having some really meaningful conversations, not just with folks that we agree with. And obviously, I deeply respect what each of you have done throughout this pandemic, not just actually about what you say, but really what you've done, put yourselves out there with your families in, in, in front of this thing. But that aside, it's like, if we can't do that, we will be no better off. Like we will go right back. People will be like, oh, next pandemic. Well, let's just get ready to lock down. It's like, but did we accomplish anything in our lockdowns? Cause I actually don't think we did. Mm. Like, I really don't think we got anything positive out of our lockdowns. I, you know, and I might be alone in that. And by the way, I might be wrong. But that said, it needs to be investigated and in a, in, a, in a really meaningful way to answer that before it becomes assumed that acting hard and acting fast and all these like bullshit slogans are like are, are, are the truth, you know, and they become the truth and they become fact all without any really meaningful evidence supporting them. I, I got to say, I'll get you some more next year, but I got to say the, the the idea of like abandoning logic. I think that's that's a key point there. Like when you like think about what we were doing in restaurants, folks. Okay, you would literally wear your mask to sit down, take off that bloody thing, eat, chat, you know, smooch even, you know what I mean, and then take it, put it back on, and go in the bathroom, and think what this is. This is meaningful. Where's the logic there? You're on a plane. You're all gonna drink something. You're on a six-hour flight. You know what I'm saying? And during the lockdown, by the way, you were sending like 20 Uber drivers to stand. Yeah, that was my ever, next point. If you ever went and picked up food, you would see these folks. It'd be like crowding the busy restaurants, all like standing in there, like arguing which order is theirs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and then like people waiting for the food to show up. Oh, I mean, and that, that's the other point too. Like the, I mean, the lockdown part was because the other key part that people forget with the lockdowns, like tons of people were working. Like you're, I'm in Ottawa where 70% are could stay home, right? Like this, that's a unique city. That's why we were very sheltered from this bad boy. They're still, like, aren't they still fighting going back to the office? Oh my God. Let's be Folks, real. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, like it's anyways, but yeah, yeah it's set, like 70% could stay home, but you're in 
GTA, you, you're in an area that's like a lot of essential workers. You don't have that option, man. So how is this lockdown really looking at the big picture? Anyway, sorry, Suma, you, you were going to hit it up. We, I just I wanted to add one anecdote. I just think it, it kind of talks about all this is that, you know, there was a time when you know, as, as things started going through 2020, I started, like, you know, Stefan, I think, um, I think you and I met, met um, uh, online around that time. Uh, and you planted a couple of seeds after I, I was reading stuff like, you know, about the idea of, of you know, uh, risk transfer, risk being downloaded to other people. And I started kind of thinking, about, yeah, you know what, like, you know, uh, people that are working in the manufacturing industry, you're not going to really see them a lot unless you live in a place like Brampton or uh, Northwest Toronto, you know, where the manufacturing hub of, of Ontario and in many cases, Eastern Canada, um, Central Eastern Canada is, right? So I remember in, uh, I was already starting to go, you know, is this really doing anything? And uh, when I was in, I guess it would have been the second wave, when it was, it was a pretty bad one. I just kept seeing um, factory worker after factory worker. But then the thing that stuck out was there's tons of Amazon workers. So I asked one of them, like, can you tell me something? Like, why are there so many Amazon workers? Like, are you guys, uh, like, you know, there's a lot of sick people working, you know, that kind of thing? Because it was, in retrospect, it was a very naive question. And what that one woman told me, her face is burned into my memory. She told me, she goes, look, you know, every time a, a, a lockdown is called or something happens like that, what ends up happening is that the, uh, the orders triple. So then we end up working double and triple shifts and we all get COVID. And that was just a light went off. And I was like, excuse my language, guys, but holy shit. Like we're basically um, taking all this risk for people that can, the, the, what was it called? The laptop class that can stay home and order all this stuff. Meanwhile, all that risk was going down to all these people. And I was seeing it one after another, after another, after another. Um, uh, I'm not sure, uh, Zane, I'm not sure if you guys saw that much, but like, it, but just in the, like I was in Mississauga, that's the heart of Peel, where the manufacturing industry is. And every single peanut factory, uh, the sheet metal, like I just saw all of them. And that I think was the kind of thing that turned me um, and realized that we, what were we doing? Okay, I'll shut up. Then you look like you're going to... Yeah, I, I, I would say, I mean, I, I think Stefan and um, Suman make great points. And, and you know, I, I think that that was very apparent at the beginning. The other thing I would say is 2021 to 2022, things like vaccination and public health measures fell along political lines. And that was a huge mistake. And, and it, it, it was devastating, right? I actually, I remember actually back to the, the, um, the uh, first snap election kind of in 2021 and, and, it, you know, actually a great video of all the political parties saying, you know, encouraging vaccination and, and putting their differences aside. And then all of a sudden it became mudslinging about how much public health measure you you know, you're willing to do how much, you know, you're willing to invest in, and it's not a Canadian phenomenon. We saw this in the United States with, with, uh, with the Biden and Trump campaigns and the contrast between the two, and then really aligning public health views to political views, and then you know, really making it very uncomfortable for certain people to to then express counter views without being considered, you know, an alternative party. Um, and it's it's something we need to reflect on, right? And I think we have public health and public health messengers and people that are agnostic to political views, but are really there to, you know, um, uh, you know, support the health of their populations from a health, from a societal, from an emotional, from, you know, all the, the, you know, the, the aspects of good health in that sense, 
you know, you really can't involve politics into that because all of a sudden then you start getting countercurrent messaging and you start getting, you know, people being pushed and you start, you know, aligning values to views and you start saying right and left based on what people consider uh, where, you know, again, the science doesn't necessarily follow political direction. Um, and it was a really big mistake and it, it still is pervasive. And, and uh, you know, we saw every election that happened from 2021 to 2022 is public health and public health, um, messaging really was embedded in each one of those. And, and it was not, um, it, it caused more harm than good. Uh, and, and I think it, it, it's, it's a big lesson from this. This is that, you know, you can be proactive for, for effective public health interventions as a, um, uh, as a, an individual in that society that has a role, but you can't stake it on campaigns. Uh, and, uh, and it really makes it hard to de-escalate measures at that point when your campaign and your identity is tied to certain public health measures in that sense. A bloody men. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I'm cognizant of the time. And so I'm going to try and hit up some of the, maybe like the, uh, maybe quick, what do you call it? Rapid fire a little bit. Cause, um, I think, uh, actually there's only a couple couple points that people hit up on that we haven't touched on. Um, there was a push for mask mandates in the last couple months because of the amount of uh, RSV and influenza uh, that was happening. This still is happening, in, in especially in our extreme ages, really young and really old. Uh, any Any viewpoint on that? I'll leave it open to who wants to throw down. I I, I think mass mandates have been useless. <laughs> I, I'm you know and, and by the way I don't expect every folks to agree with me. I just it's like it's 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 an interesting dynamic, right? Because w when you go and you saw folks who were you know on the buses. Um, you know, so I, I take the bus to the airport. And so, you know, this, our subway in Toronto, just for folks, only starts at like 5.50 a.m. And before that, you got you to gotta jump on buses. And so the construction workers on the bus, you know, who were on, on, you know, wearing masks during the, when the mask mandates were on, taking this what's called, it's like the construction line, because it goes down below basically and takes all the construction workers from Scarborough before the subway line to downtown to do all the construction that build all the stuff that, you know, is being built right now. And every one of them is wearing this useless cloth mask. And it's like probably the one thing that the anti-maskers, which I think I probably am one at this point, and the pro-maskers and the all-maskers can agree on is that cloth masks are useless. But that's what 100% of these folks are wearing. Like they're wearing these reusable cloth masks that are like barely on their face, often below their nose. And so to me, it's not so much about like, what could this intervention achieve if done perfectly? Like saying the study you were involved with the help lead, it's like, everybody's like, but all of them got COVID outside of the healthcare system. They didn't get it when they were watching, wearing their N95, but it's like, but that's the point. Like public health interventions live or die or succeed or fail in the real world. And so, yeah, like I was seeing the real world. I would have loved to have taken a photo, but like, I don't think these folks have been friendly to me taking a photo of all them, but it was a hundred percent cloth masks of all these folks in the morning, all crowded, like we're literally like person to person on this bus. It's like a perfect, you know, vehicle for massive transmission. And so I just, I just sort of put that forward of like, that's what a mass mandate does to me. And to, I think to the person sitting at home calling for them, they are just imagining 
they're like, oh yes, but the government should do this. But it's like, but they didn't. The government should be handing out N95s. Well, so maybe those people don't even want to wear N95s. And how are you going to police them wearing N95s? And how are you, you know what I mean? It's like, there's so, it would be so hard to make a mask program work. I would say it's like, if you gave me millions and millions and millions of dollars for me to design a mask program, like, I don't know, maybe I could pull it off really with an endless budget, but it's like, for what? And so I just think that like, as these programs went out in the real world, I think they did nothing but burn people's energy you know, because some people, it just turns out, don't like wearing a mask. Shocking to other folks. They just don't like wearing a mask. And other folks, and so just, let me just, this is the last thing I'll say is that like, just as they played out in the real world, I think we're functionally useless other than burning people's energy. And and so, yeah, like I, I'm like, I'm a fervent anti-masker at this point because it's just like, it's an insult to public health to me, you know, like to like everything I've trained in and everything I've worked towards like just saying like the, these two words mass mandate as the fix to that is an insult to the very thing that I want to spend my life doing. So. Zane. Yeah. I mean, three points. One, you know, masks are still important in clinical settings. And I think we all understand that we've been doing them before we've been, we'll continue to do them. So I, you know, that's one piece. Secondly, I mean, to go with the point that was raised here, you know, the best study we have is Bangladesh, right? 10% relative risk reduction it's interesting when you read the Bangladesh study, because with community kind of people that pump up, you know, masking that are really trying to educate and, and probably are also there to, to mass be, compliance. Yeah. Exactly. Mass yeah. compliance people, you get to 54% compliance. When those people leave, compliance drops significantly, right? And, you know, I think you, you have to just look around and see what happened in this last few months, regardless of the messaging you know, I, I, maybe it's the communities I, I'm in, but I didn't see mass compliance change significantly, maybe about 5% in, in the context of the last couple of months. Um, you have to understand the value of this public health intervention. Bangladesh is actually a nice insight, not only into what we think the you know, community-based optimal masking efficacy is, but also the fact that you really have to continue to enforce, 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 in order to get to that even 10%. And, you know, without that really enforcement, you're not getting anywhere in that sense. That probably spells that it's probably a very poor long-term public health intervention in the context that you really have to pump it week by week by week by week in order to actually get compliance that may actually give you the effects that you see in, in a cluster randomized control trial. Um, and uh, and again, you know, the, the world we live in is showing that people don't want to mask normally. And, uh, and you know, some people can, and it's a good intervention for them if they want to do it. I, I, and we should respect everyone that wants to mask. I think that the, uh, on the other side, you know, people showing, you know, the disdain and making fun of people who are masking in public, um, you know, is, is also uh, something we need to address and, and really need to support people in their medical decisions. But at the same time, as a long-term effective intervention, it's not it's not going to be useful because people don't want to do it and and uh you know and, and the compliance issues and everything else that comes from it and and you know the third thing i'll say is with every mandate comes with enforcement and so what does enforcement look like uh you know is it that you can't go to establishment x or y without a mask uh you know if you're someone who's on the fringes with mental health issues with other issues and you know or are you going to doctors to get mask exemptions right and so 
you know, again, you, you then push people to the fringes. You may not get the, the, you know, the compliance you want. Uh, and again, you may start, you know, then cracking down on certain populations that, that, you know, are disproportionately affected by, by types of mandates and rules in that sense. A hundred percent. Suma. You're, you're muted, my friend. Yeah, the worst. Uh, you, you know, the the thing that uh, I heard a lot of good lines um, in the last month or so. Um, there's something called the no true Scotsman fallacy um, that uh, very well applies to mask mandates and lockdowns. And it was it was cool because I've been hearing these all throughout the pandemic. And then it makes sense um, is the idea. Of, oh, well, if we did the mask mandate right. You know uh, uh, what uh, Stefan was saying. If we masked hard enough, if we had just done this, uh, you know, that wasn't actually a mask mandate. That was, you know, this. If we locked down hard, oh, that wasn't a lockdown. Uh, you know, this is a lockdown. Obviously, now a lot of that stuff is ridiculous because we're three years out, and we saw that even China, um, uh, you saw what happened there, but uh, no place ended up uh, being able to completely keep it out, keep COVID out forever. Um, so the the no true Scotsman fallacy uh, really applies. And I think that um, the really insightful thing that I read, and actually, again, Stefan, it might have been from your Twitter too, is that um, you know if you are making a policy, and your explanation for why that policy didn't work is because people weren't doing it right, there's nothing. Then that doesn't mean there's something wrong with the people. It means it's a shitty policy, and I, I think that applies to any public policy, but uh, for health ones, I think especially that, that that's the case. Yeah, I I, I want to just finish. I, I want to pick up on something that Zane said because it, it you know, so I've spent a big part of my career looking at like the role of police and laws in public health, and you know it's like, so obvi obviously I'm white, so I'm not gonna like sit here and say that I've lived experience around this, but it's what one thing that we know is that like police interventions or interventions that are based on using police don't affect people that look like me. They just don't. And I think what we saw in New York City very early was differential enforcement of like masking laws. You see these videos of these like aggressive, you know, um, you know, police carrying guys off buses, slamming their faces into the countertops. And then on the other side of the city in, you know, in rich part of New York, they're like the police are walking around handing out masks to people being like, hey, you should think about putting this on. And so it's like it's the differential enforcement that happens that says to me, like, police serve an important role in society. I'm not here to complain about the role of police, but I, I don't think once you start relying on police in public health, like the whole thing is 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 lost. You might you just got to go back to the drawing board and start over. And so it like I think that like our alliance on police for the lockdown our reliance on police and like calling the police as it related to masks for all of it meant that these were failed interventions and particularly again affecting the very people that we we expected to like leave their homes that were getting more COVID, and then ended up on the wrong end of the police related to you know that these mandates of like don't go to public parks when they don't have backyards don't go you know what i mean like there was just like it was so it just was so strange in design and so counter to what I think Canada likes to think of itself as Canadian values and progressive values that I actually have a tough time coming to terms with how it even happened. And what worries me even more is that it's going to happen again. We lost our way. We I'm just going to straight up say we lost our way. Like when we get, when we let our, our fear run our decisions as opposed to our values, this is when it was gone. And, you know, as Canadians, I always figured this is what a place where we stick up for those that can't stick up for themselves. 
it, it, it was, I think that's probably where I had the the hardest time. And Steph, you mentioned like how much of this affected people that look like me or any racialized communities. Like this is a thing. This was like a beat down on racialized people, like everything, school closures. You know what I mean? You talk about um, vaccine passports. You know, you mean, you mean like, oh, let, let me double check. Let me triple. You, I went to do like I, I don't told anybody this, but there was a couple times in those restaurants where it's like double check, triple check. Let me make sure that second dose was there. Like, I'm going to really check and make sure that this is a valid uh, uh, vaccine passport. Um, lockdowns. Who's the essential workers? Like, I think we were okay with all this stuff because it didn't affect the most, like, affect more racialized people, the people that didn't have as much of a voice. And this is what pissed me off, frankly, and that it was okay that we were, whether it was, you know, racialized community, whether it was kids, people that were vulnerable and they can't speak up for themselves, like, that's who we justified and said okay we'll we're we're we'll just keep doing what we're doing despite the data despite the data showing like whether it's effective or not you know whether you're looking at bc or ontario that does completely different approaches with the same results in the same country this is what what, what our people were doing and i just i gotta say like it just it just ate at me second point i'll make one before going to steph is I think you made also a good point about the investment. Like people have a certain amount of bandwidth in general, right? Like you're going to say, let's, let's mask harder. Let's do all these interventions harder. And one thing that has always, this was on, I think another live cast that we did, Steph, when you said, let's focus on interventions as opposed to restrictions. Let's invest there. That made so much sense to me especially when you know areas that are going to be the hardest hit, when you know where, who are the most vulnerable, let's invest there, put the vaccines there, put the, uh, the offer paid leave there, like invest where it's going to give you this biggest bang for your buck. That to me, like, if you think about all the money spent, wow. And like, the, and to like have like a infrastructure too, to, to, to be able to handle future pandemics, like that point too, I, I think we can't overlook that, you know, when you invest more time and effort into areas that are less effective, you know, it's a distraction. It really, it, it really can be a distraction. Anyway, Steph. Bye-bye. Yeah. I, I, I just want to say that the last thing I, I would want for our province or our cities or our hospitals to release just one data point, one data point. We often talk about, they're like, oh, in the end, it was only a few percent of people fired related to vaccine mandates. And, you know, I would just love them to release the demographics of who was fired, because we know that there's like a lot of historical mistrust for, by the way, good reason. I mean, a lot of people with like, I always think like a patient's making a rational decision based on their own dynamic, their own history. Most people are making rational decisions. It might not be the decision I want them to make. It might not be this, the, like the, the sort of absolute, but it is like the right decision for themselves. And sometimes that decision was not to get vaccinated. And But I would just love for people to release that for the city of Toronto, the city of Ottawa, the province of Ontario to just release data on, on our hospitals. What were the demographics of the people who were fired? Because I'll, uh, my guess is just from what I've seen, it's going to look really ugly in terms of people who say that they're supportive of particularly racialized communities. And so I think that's part of it is that you can't overcome medical mistrust 
in like, like a five minute conversation. You can't just be like, Oh, trust me now. I'm here to fix it now. Like I know like generations have lied to you, but like, I'm, I'm, you can trust me now. Just, you know what I mean? It's like, you can't, you can't just fix that. And so anyways, I just think that that's going to be an important statistic because otherwise, again, like in a few years, I actually think the next pandemic could easily be in the next five to 10 years. So, you know, like we're going to be back here with vaccine mandates, lockdowns, et cetera, unless we like more meaningfully explore what happened. Yeah. Thank you for that point. I must say too, like, um, just as a follow-up, you know, I, I do some talks on systemic racism and, you know, George Floyd was a part of that, but it was also seeing who was getting hardest hit throughout the pandemic. And cause I hate giving, I must say, I, I hate giving those talks because it's like, it's, you know, it, if I'm being honest, it's a bit traumatic. You put yourself in a vulnerable spot talking about the, you know, tough times, but I think, you know, this was a, a another area that we just need to recognize that this is not, uh, this is not an equal problem. This is not a problem that just hits up, you know, everyone equally. It's, it's, you know, it, it really those that are racialized. It's, it, it hits the most. Um, I'm, I'm cognizant of the time, so I think we're gonna we're gonna wind up here, and I just want to make a couple final points. Um, I think one, I I really hope in the future that we we learn about the the negative impacts of having a fear narrative. Like we want to be able to create trust moving forward with public health, with and and I and I really truly humbly believe that when we when we have that fear narrative, when we make decisions from a place of fear, that 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 pulls us further away, pulls us further away from our values and and making correct decisions, the decisions that will um, be more holistic. So that's one point I, I want to close on. The second is, you know, I think the value of having this conversation, like a lot of people approach, I'm sure you guys get this approach, us uh, talking about how, like, you know, having that kind of balanced view has been so valuable throughout and having the conversation right now about, you know, where we've, where we, where we could have done better. I honestly feel like it's healing for a lot of people because when we talk about things that weren't logical, the approaches that seem to, you know, uh, we were doing these things that didn't make sense. And I was trying to do the right thing. They told me after three vaccines that we'd be no more lockdowns yet. We locked down, like a lot of people are looking for validation for the, the things that they've gone through. And I think having conversations like this validates things. It also gives them hope that, that the future, you know, when we, all of us are leaders that are on this panel with people that like us that are being able to have a voice can really um, advocate for, for 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 a better future when it comes to the next time a pandemic like this happens so i i i want to thank our panelists because i i really think these conversations will make a difference like many of the stuff that we've done over the last three years clinically from an information point of view or in a communication point of view it makes a difference so i want to thank zane suman steph for such a great conversation as as usual we ball boys we ball you know what i'm saying so thank you thanks for those that are that uh uh, joined on facebook 
Once again, put NL in the in the chat box, and you'll get a copy of this, or 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 subscribe to our Substack, and you'll get a, a version of this video and the the audio. And uh, we really appreciate you guys signing in. And uh, you will not see us hopefully for a very very long time. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks so much. <laughs>